This is Ben Guest, and this is Ben Bo's podcast. Today, I have a great conversation with Paul Nepper. Paul is a writer, just published his first book. It's titled The Knicks of the 90s. If you're a basketball fan who came of age in the 90s, you know these names Charles Oakley, Anthony Mason, John Starks, Patrick Ewing, of course, Pat Riley, Jeff Van Gundy, um, just a whole host of legendary characters. And Paul's book is about this group, so I can't recommend it enough. And while the book is about basketball and covers the Knicks basically from 91 through 99, it's also about dealing with loss in terms of you're a team, you're giving it your all, and you fall just short, achingly, heartbreakingly short. Or as uh, Paul quotes Jeff Van Gundy is saying, they were champions without the rings. So I think you'll enjoy this conversation. Again, I can't recommend enough buying Paul's book, The Knicks of the 90s. In this conversation, we talk about leadership, talk about how Charles Oakley was really a sweetheart, and how Rudy Tomjanovich was the most fun interview that Paul had in this process. Enjoy. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Sure, Ben. Thanks for having me on. What year did you graduate high school? 1995. Okay, so I graduated in 93, so we're right in the same era. So 1995, what music was Paul Nepper listening to? Uh, Pearl Jam, mm-hmm. Nirvana, mm-hmm. R.E.M., um, I got into the hip hop a little bit. I was mostly a rock and roll guy, but I was uh, definitely listened to Wu Tang, uh, mm-hmm. Biggie, Tribe Called Quest. So I was into that stuff some, uh, but more more rock and roll. And I guess uh, my high school years was kind of that that grunge era. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Pearl Jam, Nirvana, all of that. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. And what's your favorite pizza place in New York City? Oh wow. Um, blanking right now. Um, Are you gonna get in trouble with those people back home? I love I love Gristidis. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll go with that Gristidis. Okay. But yeah, I will. I will. I will get myself in some trouble. I think. <laughs> Do you have a favorite uh, taco spot in Austin? uh taco deli okay nice there was i was in austin about 10 years ago and um i'm sorry i said gristidis i meant grimaldi's gristidis is the supermarket god i've been gone eight years grimaldi's grimaldi's yeah i was in the back of my mind i was wondering wondering, sorry to interrupt you there i was like does gristidis serve pizza yeah (laughs) maybe they do it's grimaldi's okay yeah. Where's, where's Grimaldi's located? So there's a couple. There's one in Brooklyn, and there was one. Uh, I lived, my last apartment was in Chelsea, and they, and they had opened uh, another location in Chelsea that we used to go to a lot. Nice, nice. Um, but yeah, I was in Austin a few years back, and I was sort of on the hunt for the best taco. You know, there's a couple, probably even more now, but there were a couple of bloggers that had blogged all the taco spots in Austin. And the right. best place I found is it's called Rosie's El Pastor Tacos. Amazing. So anybody taking a trip to Austin, you should put that on your on your list. Well, let's we're here to talk about your book, your outstanding book, which is called The Knicks of the 90s. And one of the things that I loved about the book was at the end of each chapter, there's probably 50 footnotes. The the amount of research that you did for this book is extraordinary. And I was watching or listening to another interview that you gave. And I think you said that you just went back from when Patrick Ewing was drafted and read every single New York Times article. Uh, so one yeah, of the things, I did. Yeah, go please go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I that's exactly right. I, from about 1985 through 2001, 2002, I read every Times article and tried to read a whole bunch, a whole bunch from um, the New York Post and the Daily News and the other local papers and. Sports Illustrated and whatever I could get, but I, I wanted to get my hands on every. 
Ideally, every single thing that's ever been printed about those teams and players, and I don't think I quite got 100%, but I, I got as much as I could. Well, Ewing, maybe more than anybody in, in, in your book, I think comes across as differently, um, as different than how people interpreted his demeanor in the 90s. So we're, we're both, we both kind of came of age at the same NBA generation. And I just remember the thinking at the time was that Ewing was aloof and, you know, maybe didn't care so much. But in your book, it's clear that he, he worked his ass off all the time, was respected by his teammates, um, and behind closed doors just seems like a, a nice guy. Yeah, it's a shame um, because it really, I think, created a wedge between him and the media and him and the fans. Um, you know, he had that on the court. He had that scowl. And mm -hmm. that was kind of what the only thing that other people saw, you know, I mean, you know, it's like a, you think of like a Jordan or a Kobe and they played with tremendous intensity, but they both had that million dollar smile and they'd afterwards, you know, whether it be in commercials or in, in press conferences afterwards knew they played the game and they, and they gave, and they flashed that smile and people saw another side of them. There was another side of Patrick, um, but he never let anyone see it. And um, as I went into in the book, there are some reasons for that, ranging from his, his life experiences and the racism he faced as a youngster to, uh, to I think, just his personality, you know? And, and he, didn't, um, he didn't seek the spotlight. He didn't seek the limelight. Um, I, I, uh, Jack McCallum, the great Sports Illustrated writer, once referred to him as the reluctant superstar. And that's very much what he was. And... Um, and so his, you know, the way he, you know, he was very professional. He, you know, I, I talked to a number of reporters who covered those teams and they said, he, look, he always met his obligations, which wasn't always easy as, as a lone superstar on a team in New York City. There was a lot of, you know, criticism and, and, um, and, and constant scrutiny. And, um, but he, he met those, he met those responsibilities as a as a professional, but nothing more, you know, and, and, um, he didn't give many one-on-one -on -one interviews. He he gave about five minutes to the media after a game, and when that was done, he cut it short and said, "That's it, fellas." And um, um, you know, he just he never opened up, never never gave them anything of himself, and uh, and it's a shame. And I, I think he struggled with that as well. I think he didn't never really understood. I mean, I don't. Uh, Patrick's actually another misconception is I think he's a very intelligent guy. And I think a lot of people don't know that, um, but I think he had trouble kind of navigating and figuring out how to uh, how to deal with being a superstar in New York. And you know, I think kind of didn't fully understand and grew frustrated and um, angry himself at the way he was perceived. And I think at times failed to recognize his role in the way he was perceived. Right. Do you think those things played a part in why it took him so long to to get a head coaching job? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I think there are other things at play. I think, you know, first of all, it's, it's tough to get a head coaching job. There are a lot of guys who are, who are kind of lifetime assistants who never get that shot. Um, I think there's a bias against big men as well. Um, I think the like, you know, point guards are viewed as the more cerebral players and a lot of them. You know, even if you look around the league now from Steve Nash to Teron Lou to Doc Rivers. Um, but the other thing is, yeah, I mean, a lot of coaching is communicating. And for one, I think he struggled at times with communication as a player. Um, and, you know, a lot of it is is PR and, and media relations and, and likability. And guys like Doc Rivers and Steve Kerr, a couple of former players, for example, are extremely likable and they are extremely well-spoken and, um, uh, you know, re reveal themselves publicly and laugh and smile and joke. And that's, that wasn't Patrick's nature. And, and I think a lot of, I think front office executives had a difficult time, difficult time viewing him as head coach material because he didn't show that side of himself. Hmm. Speaking of communication and, and being a head coach, Pat Riley just comes, comes off as masterful, I think, in so many different domains. You have a great quote from Rudy Tomjanovich in your book about 
something along the lines of a great coach is someone who can win with different personnel and different styles. And that's, of course, if you compare Riley from the Showtime Lakers to the grinded out Knicks. What, what are some of the leadership lessons that you took away from, from Pat Riley? Yeah, Riley, man, he, you know, I had a lot of respect for him going into it. And, and uh, he, you know, you talk to guys who played for him and there's tremendous reverence there. And there's, there was just something unique and special about him. Um, I mean, you can't underestimate when he first came to New York that he came with a great deal of cachet, right? And that, uh, you know, Greg Popovich always says that the reason he's been so successful is that Tim Duncan and David Robinson allowed him to coach them. And when you come in to a situation and have four championships under your belt, guys are much more inclined to allow you to coach them. So that that helped. There's there's luck and chance in, in everything, right? And it, it certainly behooved Pat Riley to walk into a situation where he was coaching Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And, and that's not to minimize, you know, the coach that, that Riley was, but that that helped him from day one when he walked in the door at New York. Um, as far as leadership, you know, I think uh, he was extremely demanding, but, you know, I think of Riley, I think he, he, you know, he led by example in many ways, you know, he, he was extremely demanding of his players, but he was, people always think of Jeff Van Gundy and, and, guys like Eric Spolstra as kind of those gym rats who stay up all night watching film and don't get any sleep and this and that. Riley is a different image because he has, you know, the slick back hair and the Armani suits and the suave persona, but he was very much of that, of that mold, you know, just watching film constantly. And a lot of guys told me they always believed that, that Pat Riley was going to do whatever it took for them to win. Um, he was all about winning all the time. Like guys, obsessive. That was all he thought about. Uh, Mike Breen, the great announcer, told me Riley was the most focused person he's ever met in his life. And that focus was always on winning. And that resonates with guys, right? I mean, that, that, um, so he was very demanding, but I think players are much more, players are much more willing to accept that if you, if you hold yourself to the same standard. And, and so there was that component. Um, Pat was, uh, he was very sincere um, and guys respected that about him. And he would tell you flat out, you know, if you're negative, I mean, I talked to Doug Christie and Doug Christie told me he was traded to the Knicks. And on day one, he met with Pat Riley and Riley sat him down and said, you're not going to play very much this year. You're not going to be a part of the rotation. And, you know, you, uh, and Doug Christie told me every time he sees Pat Riley, he thanks him for making him into a productive NBA player. And what Riley said to him was, look, you need to, you need to work on your game and work, try and find a niche for yourself in this league and, and a role for yourself in this league. And right now you're not ready to do that. And so Christie was very upset and disappointed on day one to be told, hey, you're not going to play. You know, he thought this was going to be a great opportunity for him. But he appreciated the fact that Riley was straightforward with him, that he, you know, he didn't live, leave him in the wind. He told him up front, this is the situation and this is what I expect from you. So I, I think um, that, that his work ethic, his honesty, um, and uh, let me see what else made Pat, you know, he was a great, he was a great speaker. Uh, that was something I learned. Um, it was fascinating. I say in the book, you know, I, you know, people watch movies and they have this notion that, you know, the coach gets up every before every game and gives an impassioned speech to motivate the troops. Well, these guys are professionals making a lot of money and there are 82 games in a season. Like they're not responding to that. Um, coaches save those types of speeches for rare special moments. But but Riley did. He gave a he gave a, a major speech, 10, 15 minute speech before every game. Um so he, he um, you know, he uh, was very into the psychology of leadership um, and was very, studied it very much um, and looked for different ways to push people's buttons. You know, for example, he knew that Anthony Mason played better when he got mad. And so he would push Mason's buttons, um, you know, and then so he would try all different psychological 
ploys and and words and 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 that to try and to try and push people's buttons and get the most out of them. So those those were some of the ways that he led. And that obsessiveness, that that such strict attention to detail, that's certainly I think one of the traits that Riley and Van Gundy share. You read about someone like Steve Jobs, even as we started this interview, you know, you went back and literally read every single article about the 90s Knicks. So how much of that focused attention to detail do you think is a key component to success? Yeah, I think it's huge in, in whatever you do. Um, absolutely. Uh, because they're bec because behind that focus is, is love. I think a love for what you do, a passion for what you do. And those guys are passionate about coaching. I was passionate about writing this book. Um, you need that. It's, it, you know, and, and, but Riley is, is an outlier. I mean, to, to be able to do that at the level he did for the duration that he, he's still doing it. You know, I, I, I don't, Riley's, I think 76, 77 years old now, and he's still, you know, he can't, he kind of can't pry himself away from the game and, you know, he's not half fast in it. Like he's in the office early every morning and grinding as the president of the heat. Um, so it's, it's really, he's a very interesting case study just as a personality, you know, hundred percent. I think you mentioned this and there was a Wright Thompson long form article a few years ago on Riley that mentioned this, that he's got this beautiful house on the ocean in Los Angeles. And he's like you said, he's still, you know, in his office, grinding away, both in your book, both Riley and Van Gundy have scenes where it's pitch black, they're in their office watching film hour after hour uh, on end. Yeah, and as you said, with Riley, I mean, he, he does have that house on the beach and he's, you know, he, he's in his mid seventies and certainly doesn't have anything left to prove right i mean i think he, in his mind he does you know always right. there's always that that next championship and to show that he could do it again but um i mean what a career what a what a life uh if anybody could walk away satisfied you would think it would be him but he's he's not satisfied yet right i mean and, and that's certainly a connecting a through line between someone like riley and jerry west and larry bird and you know, players that went on to, to work in the front office or coach and um, just get so obsessed with it. Uh, I want to come back. You said something that I, that I want to come back to, the idea of luck and chance. But first, let's just talk writing process a little bit. What does your outlining phase look like? Um, yeah, man, that was hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was... You know, I'd, I'd never written a book before and it was, you know, you kind of learn as you go. Um, I I sat down and kind of, uh, I think I started with just major themes. What are some of the major themes I want to get at in this book? And then, um, and early on, I, I visualized it as, as kind of two parts because living it, 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 it seemed like they were the, the Riley years and the Van Gundy years. And so early on, I said, okay, I'm going to do kind of a part one and part two, um, even though there was a lot of overlap. Um, and so I, start, I started with themes um, and then just started jotting down ideas. I had I just in a, in a, most of my stuff's on, you know, on the computer, but um, especially if I'm, kind of brainstorming it, it seems to work better for me if I physically write and so I, I, I just started writing down all different themes and and ideas and things I wanted to include and things that I thought were interesting and and um kind of took that big blob of of thoughts and formulated a, a, an outline out of that and I, I thought it made sense to go chronologically and um and kind of figured out where to work in different different ideas I had. Right, and one of the things that I love about the book that you do so well is you go moves chronologically and every time we meet a new character, quote unquote, you go into their backstory, starting I think with Ewing. And, and so that 
gives you gives the reader a rooting interest in these characters as they progress through the nonfiction story. How much of that was intentional on your part to sort of build the backstories from jump? Yeah, that was very intentional. I I struggled a little with how to do it. Um, well, let me back up. You know, first I, I came up with this the idea for this book and um, kind of it, it was an idea in my head, and then I you know I have to I I really thought it through. Like, okay, well this is this really a good book? You know, is this just a is this a long form article? Is this a series of articles? Is this a podcast? Is like what is this or does this you know is this do I have enough here to write a book? And one of the um, I, I obviously I concluded yes, and one of the one of the major reasons was I thought um, that this book um, could work because I thought there were a lot of compelling characters, um, and I, I think really any book you know you you need compelling characters, and, and so I thought there were a lot of compelling characters, and, and from the start that was a focal point for me that okay one of the strengths of this story is the characters, and I need to highlight the characters. Um, it was it was tricky as to when to introduce them because I, I appreciate you picking up on that. I wanted I wanted people to be invested in them from the start. And yet you don't want to like kind of bombard the reader early on with all these different names, and you want to kind of do it gradually. Um, so I still don't know if I did that right, you know, or the best way. Um, I, I tried to some of them I felt needed to be in from the start because I felt certainly Ewing and Riley. Um, and then, I, you know, like guys like Starks and Mason, I think were so important in that first season. So I wanted to get them in early and then works some of the later guys in later. But yeah, it, it all started with my my basic belief that the characters were a big part of, of that team and, and the book. Yeah, speaking of characters, it's clear that that you have a lot of affinity for this for this series of teams in the 90s and maybe it's just me reading too much into it but it seems like in particular Starks like Starks might have been your guy when you were when you were growing up is that true uh yeah he was you know what for me it was like Starks Oakley and Mason and um there were a few there were a few interviews that you know uh I was like wow I can't believe I'm talking to this guy and and there were a couple that I was really nervous before. I was nervous to talk to Van Gundy, um, Dave Chackets early on, who was the president of the team. I was nervous to talk to and 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 Oakley because I was a big Oakley fan, and Oakley I didn't know what what to expect talking to Oakley. So, um, but it's funny, you know, I I when I was going to talk to Starks, I think my wife said to me, "Are you nervous?" And I said, "Yes." And I said, but not as nervous as some of the other guys. Well, I, I did close to 100 interviews for this book, and there's only one that I forgot to press record on the recorder, and that and that was John Starks. And I think that's I think that was uh, I think afterwards, I, you know, I said to my wife, I I think I was pretty nervous for Starks. Um, yeah, I love Starks. Uh, I still love Starks. Um, I just, you know. There's something about his just under his underdog story, you know, and 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 Mason had that as well. They, they were just they were underdogs, and his backstory um, is incredible. And 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 he made it through, you know, even like his, you know, he start he was listed as six five. He was he's only like six two, you know. He was playing shooting guard, and he was even on the court. He was always overmatched size wise against the the guys who was going up. And, um, you know, he played for five different schools. He was packing groceries at a Safeway, making 335 an hour a couple of years before he was in the NBA. I mean, it was just incredible. And just some of the anecdotes, learning that, you know, that he, the Knicks intended to cut him um, in his first training camp. And by fluke, by injury, he, he ended up sticking around and, and made the team. And, um, and I always felt for him, too, with, you know, shooting he shot two for 18 in game seven of the of the NBA finals and um I always felt I always kind of felt for him for that and so yeah I certainly have a, a soft spot for John Starks yeah so two for 18 in game seven 
But of course, as you go into detail, game six, I mean, it, back to your quote, luck and chance. I mean, he was on fire. And that shot that he takes to win the game, that three-pointer, I mean, if you just look at his form and he's in, in the groove and his form is perfect and Hakeem makes one of the all-time great athletic defensive plays to just get a finger on it. Yeah, I, I yeah, I was uh, I was talking to somebody about that recently. It was to me like the the difference in John Starks is, and not just Starks, but a lot of people, but Starks in particular in his legacy and the perception of him. If Olajuwon doesn't get his finger on that shot and it goes in, that would have it would have been a championship winning shot. One of the I mean, most famous shots in NBA history, it would go down as. Um, it would have given Starks 19 points in the fourth quarter of a championship winning, I mean, one of the all-time clutch performances it'd be remembered as. Um, there's a chance he would have won NBA Finals MVP. Uh, he would have never had the game 7-2 for 18, which in, in has tarnished his legacy. Um, I think, you know, if he makes that shot, I think his, I think his number three is retired in the rafters by the Knicks. I mean, I, I think just the whole narrative on, on his life and legacy would be so completely different. Um, and uh, yeah, it's wild. And there are a few, you know, that really jumped out at me doing the research. You know, you know that I brought that up early in our interview like that. Uh, just luck and chance and you know in, in 1999 in, in game five against the heat um when Allen Houston hit a shot that you know the final second that hit the rim and then hit the backboard and hit the rim again and went in and if he misses that shot Jeff Van Gunny's definitely fired they probably break up that team um just a lot of things go in a completely different direction and instead they went to the NBA finals and uh yeah, we, you know, we do that, you know, I don't, I don't like the whole legacy thing in general. I think we get too caught up in that and, and people, you know, people are obsessed with ranking players and, um, and, and determining these legacies based on the championships they've won. And, and there's a lot of, a lot of luck and a lot of circumstance that, that goes into that. Yeah, I think the average fan doesn't realize that because afterwards it seems like everything was preordained but of course it's not it's all just right. variance um i remember there's a quote from dean smith the legendary coach of uh, the tar heels north carolina tar heels and he'd sort of been tagged as someone who couldn't win the big game because he'd been to a couple final fours so after he won his first championship with jordan as a freshman uh Smith turned to Roy Williams, who was in his assistant, and said, I'm no better coach than I was two hours ago. And it's the same thing with Van Gundy, right? Van Gundy would have gotten fired if that shot doesn't drop. Instead, they go to the finals, he gets an extension. He's considered a fantastic coach, just based on two bounces of a basketball. Yeah, it's amazing. And if you think of Dean Smith, so Dean Smith won two championships. Uh, the first one in, in 1982, against Georgetown um, and that game so easily could have gone the other way. I mean, as you said, Michael Jordan hit a great shot and then Georgetown comes down the court and Freddie Brown passes the ball to James Worthy, the guy on the other team, like Georgetown. Who, who was could have totally out of position. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. And then Smith's second championship uh, was against Michigan. my school. I, I wasn't there yet, but the University of Michigan, I, I started attending a couple years after and the Fab Five, and that was the famous game where Chris Weber called the timeout when they didn't have any timeouts. And they very easily could have lost that game. You know, it was two kind of fluky plays at the end of the game. And, you know, we could very easily be talking about Dean Smith not having any championships. And I can't think of specific examples, but I'm pretty sure there were, there were probably instances where Dean Smith, if things had broken one way or another would have had more championships. So yeah, right. absolutely. Exactly. And so that, I, I sort of go back and forth on Riley's decision to not pull Starks in game seven. As, so does he, by the way. <laughs> well, I, I think one of the fascinating things about your book is 
you sort of track the different statements that Riley's given over the years. And it's clear he's gone back and forth. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and it's fascinating. You know, Riley has, I don't know how many rings, six, seven, eight, whatever, you know, collectively. But I I'm, i don't know this for a fact, but I'm pretty confident the, the NBA finals that he thinks about the most is, is the one that got away, you know, in 94. And it's pretty clear from a lot of his statements that he's kind of haunted by that you know, because they were so close. And, and there is this controversial decision that he made to leave Starks in the game. Um, I, I, I'm of the, the viewpoint that he made the right decision to leave Starks in the game. Um, Starks kind of, you know, he, he got them there. Um, he, he had a great series up to that point. Um, and I think it was the, the four previous games he'd scored, Starks had scored double digits in the fourth quarter. So he had kind of saved his best for the fourth quarter. He was a guy who could kind of, who could be shooting poorly and turn it on at, at the drop of a dime. Um, the other thing is, I, I don't think there was a viable alternative. And, you know, people point to Rolando Blackman and Rolando Blackman had a great career. Um, but he he didn't play one minute in the in the NBA Finals, and I don't care how much of a professional you are to to call on a guy in the fourth quarter of Game Seven of the Finals after he hasn't played in the whole series just isn't isn't realistic to me. Um, you could I think you could fault Riley for not incorporating Blackman into the rotation the whole series so that he was prepared for such a moment. But, but I think in that specific moment, I don't think there was a great Plan B. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's, and ultimately that I think it also highlights one of the, one of the major flaws with that next team is that they didn't have a great consistent second scorer. Um, Starks is probably best suited to be a six man. Um, and they didn't have a guy, especially in particular a shooter, like, because Patrick got double teamed all the time and there was. There were shots available on the perimeter and they didn't have a guy who could consistently knock them down. Um, but yeah, Riley, you know, he, he, he initially defended Starks um, and his decision. Um, years later, he, he, he publicly said that it was the biggest mistake of his career to leave, to leave Starks in. Um, and uh, I talked to Harvey Araton of, of the New York Times, who has a good relationship with Riley. He told me he talked to Riley just a few years ago about it. And Riley admitted to him, like, yes, yeah, Starks was my guy. There was just no way I was I could I could do it. Um, so he's he appears to have flip-flopped on it. Um, and I imagine he will flip-flop till the day he dies. And then the, you know, the interesting component of it, which I try and work in, is that he his personal uh, affection for Starks and you know that that the guys on the team said uh you know he they called him Riley's son his Starks teammates called him Riley's son um and Riley had has said that Starks I think he said of, of anybody he's ever coached Starks was the player that reminded him most of himself and so that that adds a, a whole interesting dimension to it that he saw himself in Starks and one I think the most the the most interesting piece of information for me that I picked up in all my research was I talked to this guy Dick uh, Dick Butera who's very close friends with Riley and spent the day with Riley on Game Seven and as they're heading out to the arena they're in the hotel and they're about to go down the elevator to the arena and and Riley turns to Butera and he says Well buddy I know three guys are going to show up tonight me you and John meaning John Starks and just to hear that knowing how that how it turned out for Starks was was fascinating just that whole dynamic of the the Riley Starks relationship yeah I think that's a great insight Paul because in some ways if Riley pulled Starks because it's game seven so you're at some point there as the coach you're signaling I don't trust you anymore and it would almost have been like as if Riley wasn't trusting himself because as you said, it's yeah. the player he most saw himself in. Um, you know, as, as, as a fan of the game, 
I remember thinking during that game, watching that game live, that Derek Harper was having a good game. And I remember thinking they should probably try to get Harper some more shots. As someone who then later coached, you dance with the one who brung you. I think you even have a, that quote in the book. And if you pull them in that, in that moment, you've destroyed that coach-player relationship. Yeah, I think you're, you're exactly right. You've lost them forever, probably, yeah. Because you've shown in the biggest moment, I don't trust you, so. Yeah. So, I, you know, it's, it's an impossible decision, but I think, I think he did make the right decision. I, th I think you go with the guy who got you there. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I'm glad I didn't have to make that decision. <laughs> right. Um, you talked about in your, in your pre-writing process that you sort of outlined the major themes. What do you see as the major themes of your book? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, loss, um, you know, could falling short, um, resilience, uh, on an individual level and a team level. Um, yeah, determination, um, Hmm. Cohesiveness. Uh, just you know what it means to be a team and to and to come together as a team and all the intricacies that are involved with that. Um. Yeah, I, I you know I thought a lot about team construction um, from a X's and O standpoint, but you know as we talked about a little a little bit a leadership standpoint, how you build a team. Um, what makes what makes teams successful? Um, that was someone something I, I like to, to to I thought about a lot. Um, and I, I always found myself coming back to Patrick. Somehow it was Patrick was kind of the center of the story for me, and 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 his life and his journey um, was a theme that I always tried to to keep at the forefront. Um, and go back to well, those, those are some of them. You talk about team construction. And of course, once Riley got there, I guess Riley and Checkets got there at the same time. Is that correct? Same year? Yeah. And so they had a really nice run from Riley, brief interlude with Don Nelson and Van Gundy. And then ownership changes and Dolan comes in. And I don't think people talk about this enough. It's a very hard thing to discern from the outside. How much does who owns the team, or I don't even like the phrase team owner, let's say gov team governor, who the team governor is, whether you know Dolan takes over and after almost a decade of great success, they've had two decades of miserable failure. And recently Tillman Fertitta just took over the Rockets and they went from you know, being a, a championship contender to now being one of the worst teams in the league. How much does who is at the very top impact these organizations? Yeah, tremendously. I mean, tremendously, you know, the same as it, as it would any other organization. Um, and a lot of it, uh, you know, a lot of it, it comes down to just hiring the right people too. Um, hiring the right people and getting out of their way and letting them do their job. Um, and that's, that's where Dolan's failed the most, you know, in my opinion, I think, you know, <clears throat> he's been willing to spend, you know, he's always been willing to spend whatever it would take to, to, to bring in a winner. But, um, but for various reasons, he's, I, I think he's hired the wrong people to, to run the team. And, and in a couple instances where he's hired the right people, he, he didn't give them the space to do it. You know, he kept interfering. And so, you know, we could talk for days about the um, psyche and the ego of, of James Dolan. Um, I'd rather not, <laughs> but um, he, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's just something about that guy, you know, even when they show him on TV, if you ever seen like, he's always slumped over, like just terrible body language. I'm not, I, I don't, I don't know a great deal about body language. I don't get into that much, but it, it's bad enough that you notice, you know, and, and um, I think he has a lot of personal issues um, 
I think he has, uh, and I, I, I don't want to kill the guy. I don't, I don't know him personally, but I think there's some, he has some ego issues. I think some of the things that come with being, you know, being the son of, uh, uh, incredibly successful person and having everything handed to you, um, which he, you know, he had everything handed to you. I mean, we just, uh, we just had a president who I think had similar issues. <laughs> um, and uh, I actually, I think that actually there's a lot in common with those two. Um, but uh, yeah, he, he, it was poor leadership, you know, from, from the top. He, he's not a leader. I mean, he, in, in any sense of the word. And, uh, but I think from a, a practical standpoint it was just his his hirings i think he i think he brought in the wrong people some of that was guided again by his ego um and uh i don't know it's it's you know i i saw a writer i follow on twitter i remember a couple of years ago wrote you know if if a franchise is if a franchise is bad for a couple of years, you can blame the coach if they're bad for four or five years you can blame the general manager if they're bad for 20 years it's the owner, <laughs> you know, and again, you know, as we talk about, you know, luck and chance and circumstance plays into that as well. You know, if they'd won the lottery one of those years, maybe we're, we're having a different conversation. Um, but it's, it's, it's hard to argue that with the, with the premise that they've been a poorly run organization for a long time. And that's the one person who can't be fired. Right. Um, one of the things that I've learned about organizations and team building, trust is so important. And you write in the book that, you know, Dolan literally has personnel standing next to other personnel who are being interviewed, as in, I don't trust you at all. I mean, that's, that's the signal that's, that's given from the top. I do not trust you. And if you have an organization that doesn't, doesn't have trust, you're really going to struggle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's a real culture of paranoia there. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the press is the enemy, specifically towards the press, the press is the enemy. And um, yeah, there's a real lack of trust. And, and, and I always say, you know, like, if you're, you know, in, in, especially in, in, the, in the current day NBA, I mean, obviously there's a salary cap, right? So if you're a great player that, and there's a maximum salary, so the Knicks can't pay you more than anyone else can. And with the explosion of the popularity of the NBA, you can get your endorsement deals and, and, and all kinds of other money playing in, in small markets, um, playing just about anywhere. So all, you know, all things being equal on the financial front, if you have a chance, and forget the NBA, be it yourself or, or me, you know, you have a chance to, to teach at a number of universities. And one of those universities is very poorly run. And, you know, the, the Dean doesn't trust his employees and, and uh, you know, doesn't always treat them well. And, and there's a culture of, of, of losing and a culture of distrust. And, and are you, you know, are you gonna pick, are you gonna pick that university? Or are you gonna pick the university that, that is, treats its employees well and where people like being a part of the organization? Right. I mean, if the money's the same and every, everything's the same, like what, so why would a superstar want to come to New York? Now, I, I hope that's changing now. Um, I think there has been a shift this year. Um, and, and, and I hope that's no longer the case, but I, I, it always made perfect sense to me why people don't want to play in New York. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think you're right. You're exactly right. Um, just a few more questions. What, uh, What's one of your favorite Charles Oakley stories? Oh man, there are so many. <laughs> Legendary. There are so many. Yeah. You know, it's funny though. Um, my favorite Charles Oakley stories are, uh, first of all, everybody I spoke to, everybody has a Charles Oakley story. To the point that I would just say, I would just, I, I at a certain point, I just pose the same question that you, that you presented to me, which is what's your best, what's your favorite Charles Oakley story? Because everybody has one. Um, what was fascinating for me is, you know, about like 70% of those stories are about what a, a tough badass he is, you know, and, and tough and intimidating and, um, you know, stories about fights and stuff like that. And then, and then 
30% of those stories are about what a sweetheart he is. And I use that word specifically because a few people use that exact word to me that Charles Oakley is a sweetheart. Um, so I, you know, my favorite, uh, as great as the stories are of him slapping people and, and punching people and all that, um, I love the story from a ball boy. Steve Masiello told me a story that when his eighth grade dance that Charles Oakley gave him his car and, and, a, and a chauffeur to drive him to his eighth grade dance. And I just thought that was so cool. You know, him and him and Mason, both of those guys. Um, the, again, the majority of the stories are about how tough and scary they were, but both of them um, had very big hearts and were very kind and generous uh, in a number of ways. So th I, I would pick that one for Oak. Yeah, I love it. Uh, I kind of in the way that we were talking about good organizations have high levels of trust. I sort of judge people in organizations and outside of organizations with how they treat people who can do nothing for them. And like you just said, and as the reporting in your book bears out, it was Mason and Oakley who were the most beloved by the garden um, staff, by the ball boys, by, by the people who, you know, NBA players can treat like shit and there's no repercussions. And you have these yeah. two guys who are tough as hell, but are just considered total sweethearts. Yeah, I, I like the way you put that, the people who, who can't do anything for you. Yeah, because mm -hmm. that's, that's true altruism, right? I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just honor. I mean, you know, that's... Charles Oakley has always struck me as an honorable person. Yeah, agreed. Who was your favorite... Who was your most fun interview? Um... I'll give you two guys. Both are coaches. Uh, one was uh, Jeff Van Gundy, um, in part because um, I, I, you know, I was and and still am a big fan of his. And um, the other, but the other reason is he's so smart. <laughs> he's he's so intelligent about you know. I think in general, I think he's just extremely intelligent guy. Um, he's extremely intelligent about the game of basketball, but, but in general, and so he's able to convey, uh, ideas. And I think that's why he's, you know, been such a successful announcer. He's able to convey concepts about the game, um, in a way that people like myself can understand and appreciate. And so that was very enjoyable. Um, the other one was Rudy Tomjanovich, um, who you actually mentioned earlier and, uh, I don't know, man. You know, I, I, I talked to close to a hundred people and there was nobody who I got a better vibe from. Um, and I know that's a vague word, but uh, he just, you know, over the phone, there was just a warmth and a kindness and an enthusiasm that came through that I, you know, I hung up the phone and I thought to myself, wow what a great guy, <laughs> you know, and it, you know, it wasn't just that he was very insightful and informative. And there was a, you know, we had, um, he went to a couple things. He went to university of Michigan, like I did. So we kind of bonded over that. He also lives in Austin, which I had no idea. Um, so that was kind of cool. We, we, you know, we talked, we talked about some of the local tacos. Um, but, uh, but he, he just, uh, there was something about his, his personality and his demeanor that was um, captivating. And, and I really enjoyed talking to him. Nice, nice. Okay, let, let's end, just have one or two more writing questions, I guess. So this is the, your first book. Did you ever doubt yourself in this process? Let me rephrase that. Did I ever not doubt myself in this process? <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, at, at every step, um, it was new, you know, it was a steep learning curve. And, uh, you know, there's a part of you that everything, am I, am I organizing my this right? Am I categorizing things right? Am I, um, am I asking these, in these interviews, am I asking the right questions? Um, is anybody going to want to read this, right? That's the biggest one, I guess, you know, is, is this, uh, 
is this, yeah, is this, is this going to be any good? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking about ideas right now for a second book and I, I will be much more confident in my ability to, to put it together. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's a lot of steps. It's a long process over a few years. Um, and, and you grapple with it and so many doubts and questions along the way. So yeah, I, I doubted myself, um, the whole way through. Um, but, uh, it was, it was a great, it was a great growth experience for me for that reason, you know, because I doubted myself so much and persevered anyway. Um, so yeah, there was, there was a lot of doubt. <laughs> well, number one, the book is fantastic. So Thank regardless you. of the, of the doubt that, and I think anytime we work on a big project, especially the first of its type, there, there are those moments or continual moments where we doubt ourselves, but you can't tell it all. And number two, now you sort of, now that you've done it once, you know that it's replicable. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I know. You know, right. You know, when you go into it the first time, like, can I do, can I write a book? Right. Mm -hmm. Can I actually take all this, get all the right information and synthesize it in a, in a way that will be, that will flow and be enjoyable to readers? Like, I no, I, you know, I, I don't know if I can do that. It's, it's a big task and I've never done it before. So yeah, now, now I know I can. Yeah. And <laughs> last thing. Uh, so part of this podcast, part of it's about basketball, part of it's about leadership, part of it's also just about the creative process the writing process. So we talked about your pre-writing. Could you talk a little bit about the publishing side of it? I think that's something that in recent years, authors have been more willing to sort of demystify that process. So what was the publishing process like? Publishing a, a print version and, and a Kindle version. I read it on Kindle, selecting the cover, formatting, all those things. Yeah. Um... I mean, that was a, you know, a real learning experience for me. Of course, I, I didn't know much about the publishing industry or the, you know, the process at all. Um, going back a little bit, you know, to get a publisher. Um, I, I don't know how much you want me to go into, but you, you write a book proposal, um, which is very in-depth. I, I think mine was like 50 pages long. Um, it includes sample chapters and basically why, uh, why this book's a good idea. Um, you know, why, why it will, why it's a good idea, why, how, why it will sell, why I'm the person to write this book, those type of things. Um, you, you put in a whole outline of the book, a sample chapter, you put in similar books that uh, a publisher might compare it to and, and, um, and why, why yours is similar to certain books and why, why it will be different. Um, and you can go the agent route or not hire an agent. Um, I did have an agent initially. Um, you know, the big publishers will only accept proposals from agents. So that's the, that's the benefit of having an agent. And I think, you know, a lot of them have relationships with the, the publishers as well. Um, so that's your way in the door to the big publishers. Smaller publishers, you don't need an agent. Um, and so I, to be honest, I, you know, I struck out with the big publishers, um, ended up going through a smaller publisher, McFarlane, who um, they do a lot of sports books um, and they were really interested. Um, as far as the, you know, putting the book together, um, the, they came up with the cover um, completely. I liked it a lot. I thought they did a great job, um, but that was completely, you know, they had a designer and they came up with it. They said to me, what do you think? Um, I'm not sure I, I really, I, I didn't, I certainly didn't have veto power. I'll say that. Um, uh, the, the title also was um, a bit frustrating for me. Um, they asked me, I had a preliminary title and they asked me to come up with some other ideas for titles. So I sent them, I think five suggestions for titles and they came back and said, we chose your title and it's completely different than any of the ones you suggested. <laughs> and wow. I didn't like it very much. Um, and there was kind what of a negotiation. What was your preliminary title? Um, so so there were, I guess there were two. So my initial one was Champions Without a Ring. 
Um, and uh, and there's, a, there's a quote I have in the introduction about from Van Gundy about how in his mind, the Knicks are champions. And it was kind of played off of that. Um, initially, I, I had a preliminary deal with a big publisher, which fell through. And, and they that deal was contingent on changing the name to No Layups Allowed. That was gonna be the title. Um, and so those were kind of the two main ones that I presented and then a few variations on that. And um, so they came back to me and, and there was a little negotiation. I got them to, to change the, the one they came up with a little bit and we found a, a sweet spot that we were both happy with. So that's how we got the, the cover and the title. And um, yeah, their policy was they wanted a, a, a I think because they're a smaller publisher, they only did a paperback and not a hardcover. So they did a paperback and, and an ebook. Um, excuse me, I didn't really have any control over that process or decision. Um, and, uh, but I'm glad people have the option of, of both. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Any other specific questions about that? I'm not sure if I covered. No, no, it's, it's very helpful. Um... What was it like when you held the printed book in your hand? Oh man, that was really special. Yeah, there were, you know, there are a handful of moments that were really special with this book. And that was certainly at the top. It, it, I, I wasn't expecting them quite yet. I thought they weren't going to come for a couple more weeks and they arrived at the door and I opened it and they were like, you know, it was in a box and I was like, wow, you know, and yeah, that was that was a special feeling because you you know you poured so much into it and and as I as I said there were there was so much doubt along the way you know and a lot of obstacles to overcome and disappointments there were a lot of disappointments along the way a couple of major disappointments and so to to finally hold that in my hands was was pretty powerful. I'm sure. I'm sure that must have been a, a great moment. Uh, Paul, last question: Who? Um, sometimes I ask, who should I interview next? Just anybody you know, uh, or because you, you interviewed more than 100 people. So, uh, you know, obviously um, I can't interview some of the, the higher ups that you interviewed, but if there was somebody from your book that, that you think maybe didn't get enough shine or would be a great interview, who would you recommend? Um... I would, I, I, I throw Rudy Tomjanovich out there again, just because he was, he was such a pleasure to talk to and he has had a, a pretty interesting life. Um, I think Charlie Ward's a pretty interesting guy as well. Um, he would be a good one. And uh, if you're into basketball books and someone else to interview a guy, um, I know a little bit, a really nice guy. Uh, he wrote a book called um, From Hang Time to Prime Time. His name is Pete Croato, C-R-O-A-T-T-O. Um, and I definitely recommend checking out that book. It's basically about um, the growth of the NBA, how the NBA in like the 1980s um, really exploded and went from a, kind of a niche sport to, to the NBA that we know today. And I you know a lot of people often oversimplify it, you know, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, boom. But um, he gets into just, he, he discusses it in tremendous detail and, and depth. And it was a really great read. And, and he's a nice and interesting guy. Fantastic. Okay, I'll work on those three. Uh, Rudy T <laughs> sounds really, really fascinating. Um, you know, I never considered him to be one of the more fascinating coaches, but, but um, yeah, really interesting how you described him and the feeling of talking to him. Yeah, yeah, just a just incredibly nice guy. Well, Paul, this has been great. The book is The Knicks of the 90s. Can't recommend it strongly enough. And yes, it's about basketball. Yes, it's about the Knicks. But like you said, it's I think one of the universal themes is loss. And I like I like the original working title you had champions without a ring because it is about performing at a championship level and coming back to those ideas of luck and chance that you can be right there and ball bounces one way, ball bounces another way. Or a key yeah. with his finger on it. 
Yeah. Well, thank you for the kind words, and, and it was really nice, really nice coming on and talking. And where can people find you? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter at Paulinep. That's P-A-U-L-I-E-K-N-E-P. Um, or my website is thenixofthe90s.com. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, have a great thank day. Thank you, Ben. Thanks and for having me day. on. No, my pleasure. This has been a real treat. We'll have to do round two, some of this, you know, for the next book. Absolutely. Okay. Have a great day. You too. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Paul. This is Ben Guest. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Paul Nepper. Again, can't recommend highly enough his book, The Knicks of the 90s. And you can find all of my work at benbo.substack.com. That's benbo, B-E-N-B-O, dot substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K, dot com. benbo.substack.com. Have a great day.